Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Hacking HR podcast, the show where we talk about the amazing future of human resources and all things at the intersection of future of work, technology, innovation, organizations, transformation, and people. At Hacking HR, we believe that human resources can become the most important trailblazer, leading people and organizations successfully and effectively into the new reality of work and life. To do that, we must rise to the challenges of our times, shoot for the stars, and achieve our fantastic potential. During this show, we discuss ideas, insights, data, experiences, stories, and anything else that can contribute to helping you become and be a better HR leader and practitioner. Thank you so much for joining us today and enjoy the show. People will still go to get a four-year degree, but I think many of the, um, the coursework will be a bit more shifted towards the world of work. Not completely, I hope, um, because I think there's great value in developing citizens and developing the curiosity that can be gained from a four-year degree. But I'm hoping that we'll see, even in traditional liberal arts humanities courses, you'll see the infusion of um, kind of people from the world of work coming in and helping students take the skills they're learning in traditional courses like literature and applying that creativity imagination to the type of projects they would do in the, in the world of work. Chris is the Associate Dean for Strategy and Initiatives and Associate Professor at the United States Military Academy, West Point. His responsibilities include a strategy development and execution that support the delivery and continually improvement of a top-ranked undergraduate experience that prepares West Point graduates to be Army officers and develop them into leaders of character. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Hacking Nature podcast. I'm very excited to be with Chris today. How are you doing, Chris? I'm great, Enrique. How are you? Doing great, doing great. You know, very excited about our conversation, uh, you know, pertaining to the future of work, but more specifically, the future of education and, and the future of learning. So I, I will just dive right into the topic and ask you, when you envision the world, say, in 2030, uh, you know, 10 years from now, what do you envision education, learning, workplaces looking like? How do you think they will, they will be like? So I think um, work will be, I think COVID's accelerated the future of work a bit. I think we're seeing it with, um, obviously with remote work and flexible work, but also with automation. I think people are seeing that um, you can do things without humans and, and they can be automated. Um, and in terms of education, I think you're going to see more people doing online. I think you'll see more education and development within organizations being online, self-paced, and those sorts of things. I think people will still go to get a four-year degree, but I think many of the, um, the coursework will be a bit more shifted towards the world of work. Not completely, I hope, um, because I think there's great value in developing citizens and developing the curiosity that can be gained from a four-year degree. But I think there's also the possibility that when you enroll in an institution and you do four years, you'll still be able to go back to that same place and continue learning. So as you progress through the work world, you'll come back 
possibly to the same institution and, and continue courses. Um, I think we're gonna see a continued increase in internships and, and those sorts of projects. And I'm hoping that we'll see, even in traditional liberal arts humanities courses, you'll see the infusion of um, kind of people from the world of work coming in and helping students take the skills they're learning in traditional courses like literature and applying that creativity imagination to the type of projects they would do in the, in the world of work. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a more, perhaps more targeted, uh, you know, utilization of those skills that we're learning in a school so that they make sense uh, at work and probably many other things in life, right? Um, but there's, you know, I, I want to ask you, we, we see the, the newer generation, the, the younger, uh, the youngest people right now, they learn, for example, to do coding and different technical skills. They learn those things literally by watching YouTube videos. And yeah. it's just impressive, right? You know, in the past, we used to go to school, you know, a number of years to learn how to do programming. Now somebody can do the same, just watching tutorials or videos on YouTube. How do you think that shift in the way people want to consume learning and consume, uh, you know, ideas? How do you think that's going to impact the, you know, formal education system, if you will? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it could hurt it a bit. People may um, go on their own and, and pick up pieces of knowledge, pieces of skills on their own. I think there is a, um, well, two things. Some colleges, universities now are combining traditional programs with a four-year degree and then in the summer they do coding camps so that students graduate with both the bachelor's and a skill like coding but i think it's it's going to be very important for high schools and very important for colleges to teach students how to learn and to give them um to make sure they're they're capable of learning independently i, I think um small classes in-person learning is great but even for those schools that can do that, you need to ensure that students are able to, to go out and do that on their own. So I, I think you'll see both. I think you'll see colleges focusing on things like coding, colleges focus, focusing on um, teaching students to learn on their own. And then I think you'll see some people maybe not even going to college or um, combining college and learning on their own and then through the world of work, um, just picking up things on their own. I know Coursera's one example of, I've done a number of courses and um, yeah, and they're great, you pick up a lot on your own. Yeah, I, I want to unpack this idea of teaching how to learn because that to me mm. is the one thing that will never, hopefully never go obsolete. I mean, the skills that you learn yeah. every day, they expire because things change, but the ability that you have to learn new skills is what's going to keep you relevant. So let's unpack that concept a little bit. How, how do you teach that? How do you, how do you teach that not only to people who go through education, but how do you keep that fire, uh, you know, high in the workplace as well, where people sometimes get a little, um, you know, uh, their muscles get weak because they stop learning, if you will. No, I think that, so I think you, you've actually nailed it. I think there's a skill of learning, but then there's also, the motivation and the realization that you have to keep learning. So I think the skill, um, it's just used doing assignments, doing um, in traditional schooling, doing assignments where 
you don't teach something, but you give the students a reading or have them figure out something and, and create something on their own. And you're okay if it's not perfect. You're just happy that they're picking up things on their own and, and learning. And then not only grading what the product they've produced, but help them reflect on how they learn how to do it so that they're, they become able to assess how they learn and improve that. And I think it's, you teach them about learning science and how the, the skills of learning. Um, and then there's, a, then there's a motivation. I mean, I, th I think you have to have an organizational culture where even the, the CEO is setting the example and learning new things. And so I think throughout the organization, you have to make opportunities available and, and kind of make it cool to learn and yeah. <laughs> work through the organizational culture. I, li I like that idea, making it cool to learn, I think. And, and it's fun that you say that because the reason why younger people, the youngest generations perhaps, go through these new ways of learning YouTube or you know, Coursera or those things is because they find it fun, right? It's not just the learning, right. it's they, they, enjoy, they find joy in participating in this kind of approach, uh, approaches to learning. Whereas you go to a workplace and the more traditional ones, they still prepackage, right? Like you got to go to a course and you got to be hours in there or the online sitting where you spend hours and hours watching something and then you don't remember the first thing that was said in that video. Um, right. So I love that idea of making it cool to learn because then people will do it because it's not just the right thing to do. It's also they are going to have fun doing it. Yeah, um, and, and maybe setting aside time at work. And if some organizations have time where you you can work on something of your own, but then also setting aside time and expectations that, hey, maybe 10% of your work week is devoted to learning something new. Um, and, and then maybe having accountability partners where you discuss what you learn so that people are actually doing it. But yeah, it's definitely a, a cultural thing. And then, and then the mode matters a lot. Like you said, if it's very boring and, and people's eyes glaze over, then yeah, it's not. <laughs> yeah, that's not learning. That's just like, Either you know uh, scheming to things or or just memorizing stuff, but there's there's not really learning in 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 those things. Let me ask you, Chris, what what comes to your mind when I say this about this idea about cross pollination of ideas? And 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 I'm bringing that up because you you may have seen and in your work as well how important it is for somebody in one field to get information, ideas, knowledge, and learn from other fields that will eventually improve what they he or she is doing in, in their own field. So what, what, what do you think about that idea of cross-pollination of ideas? I, I think it's very important both at the individual level and um, when you create teams. So I think at the individual level, I mean, you know, at West Point, we have a very broad education so that even our engineers are taking philosophy and our philosophy majors are taking engineering so that they're getting a, a breadth of um, of subjects and ways of thinking. And within an organization, um, I think it's very important for individuals to, uh, to understand what's happening around them in different areas, but also to read and to understand um, different ways of thinking. And then I think when you put together multidisciplinary teams from across the organization, um, it's important that you create a framework where people um, or feel comfortable sharing ideas from their perspective and, and their, um, their position within the organization and their area of expertise, but then also that they're open and they're able to translate what others are saying. And 
And so I think organizations do have to make sure that that even their, you know, their extreme experts um, have the capability of of talking to others and sharing ideas, and they're not, you know, they're they're not too involved in technical speak where they can't communicate what they're saying, and you don't get the fusion of of that cross pollinization ideas that you talked about. Yeah, and and I like that, and and that connects back to something that you said at the beginning, which was being curious and, and this idea of, of curiosity, yeah. right? And, you know, whenever you look at things like the World Economic Forum, the Institute for the Future, um, you know, Deloitte, Accenture, all these groups, they, when they list what they think are the most important skills for the future, curiosity is always in the top five, always. Right. Um, how, how do you leave that in a, it, I, I know it for, for organizations is, is a challenge to, to implement or think about curiosity, right? How do you do that in, in a military institution? How do you, how do you, how, how are people curious? What, how can they ask questions? What, how do they do it? Very curious to know that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, I think in the operational army, um, you know, the really good leaders, the commanders will, um, they'll often have, you know, reading groups, um, but also encourage, um, you know, they'll have diverse staffs with people from different backgrounds come in, different um, branches of the service, and um, just an openness to ideas and a, a signaling, the leader signaling that um, they want to hear a wide variety of ideas. But again, I, I, you know, some of the, most leaders in the army will have a reading list and they'll often contain books that are not military, they're outside of the military, and that's, you know, when you have a commander do that, that's a signal that things matter. You can learn from outside the military and, and they're bringing in ideas. I mean, in fact, we, um, we just created a new command, the Army of the Futures Command, and we located it in Austin, Texas, really a downtown away from a, an army post to get ideas from that community there. So um, I, I think it's just openness to ideas and, and reading and, and just signaling that um, these different views matter. Yeah, and I, and I love that. And I, you know, I, I, I think it's a great example for, for you know, organ organizations in the civilian world, and very especially in the HR world where most of the, of the, of the way, most, most of the things that we learn are things that are in the vertical of HR. They, they, don't, they don't look beyond that. And something like a reading list or encouraging people to, you know, to move the HR function and, you know, move an office from HR into the technical department or into the finance department. That allows you to, you know, get exposed to things that you wouldn't get exposed otherwise. And the Army, I will say the Army um, keeps you moving around. So, you know, you pretty much switch jobs every couple of years and you get different perspectives, a staff perspective and a line perspective. And then um, at about the four-year point, you go off to school again for another six months and kind of reflect on what you learn, and then you depart again. Um, so it's a, it's a good model. It's a good model of um, you know, moving in different positions and then moving in different places, reflecting in school for a bit, and then moving again and doing something different. Um, and so do reflect and do again somewhere different, meet new people. And of course, like if you were in in the battleground or in a, a situation of conflict, that 
my guess is that yeah. that broad horizon of, of knowledge gives you better possibilities to respond to situations in a more creative way, right? It is, right. And, and um, yeah, I mean, you see the best commanders are very creative, very willing to listen to the, their teams and, and, and um, really hearing all ideas, especially in situations because things change so quickly in combat and they're often not what you expect it. So um, they're, they're very open to new ideas. Yeah. You know, one of the, uh, we were talking about this offline, one of the most transcendental management uh, ideas came from the military world, the VUCA, uh, right. the VUCA world, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And everybody in the civilian world in organizations uses that concept to explain how to get ready for, you know, uh, unforeseeable situations in a fast changing world and, and whatnot. Beyond that is what else, you know, when you think about the civilian world, what else do you think we can learn from the way the military is organized, the way the military works? And I already got one out of your previous comment, which is you, you let people move around every couple of years. They have reading lists and they expand their knowledge horizon on a very fast pace. What else can we, can we learn from, from the amazing world of the military? I think um, I mean, one thing is the intentional development of leaders is a, is a very big focus of the Army. Um, like I said, at West Point, we, that is our, we grant bachelor degrees, but we really call it, we call ourselves a leader development institution. But as officers make their way through the Army and, and non-commissioned officers, um, you know, they occupy different positions and they're, they're counseled on how they do and they're mentored. And as they move through the ranks, this continues, and then they become the counselors and mentors of others. Um, so th there's really a focus on, on that and then purpose of the organization, of course, um, always keeping that in mind, um, that why we're doing what we're doing is very important. And then I think this, what you touched on earlier, flexibility. Um, the the Army is very... Um, you know, before you deploy, you learn about the culture you're going into, but sometimes you don't have that, you know, warning of where you're going. So just going in and being flexible and being willing to learn and adapt um, as you go is, um, and which I think, I mean, I know the civilian world does it as well, but I, I know the Army and other military services do that very well because of the, the VUCA world that we operate in. Yeah, I think this is a, it's a fascinating idea what you just mentioned before about intentionally developing uh, leaders. And I think that is, that is powerful. Uh, and it is so because very often in organizations, we miss, we miss the opportunity to develop great talent to down the road become the leaders of said organizations. So I think this is a powerful idea. Um, can you share with us a little bit of how, how you do that? How do you identify, you say, well, you know, that guy Enrique, you know, he's a private now, but, you know, he has, he has something in there that, you know, yeah. we see as a, as a possibility for the future. <laughs> um, because pretty, everyone has, uh, even the private has someone who's over him or her kind of watching, responsible for developing, and, and even more than developing, in some ways responsible for their well-being. And so... Um, you know, helping individuals see themselves and helping set them on the path to get better. And then as, as they make their way through 
different positions, um, giving them the good and the bad and, and helping them reflect on their performance, reflect on themselves as a leader. But, but I think it, it is that, that everyone has someone who's responsible for helping them develop as a leader. And ideally this happens with peers as well. Um, and then having positions that we know certain people need to be placed in to develop themselves. Um, that, and then looking at the performance and then helping them see how they could do better next time. And as they go further up the, the chain. Yeah, and I, I think the, the, the idea of not only mentoring people and helping them grow, professionally grow, but also being responsible for their well-being, that is, yeah. that is such a powerful thing. I mean, it's, a, it's one thing that, of course, we talked about a lot about in, in the civilian world, in, you know, in the world of organizations, leaders being more mindful and intentional about taking care of their people, not just as the cog in the machinery of an organization and you know, how much money you cost and how much money you're making for this organization, right. but as you, you as a human, right? And uh, that's so powerful. It is, and, and you'll see, um, you know, uh, sometimes um, leaders will stop by the house, um, check on when someone's sick. Um, there's even been cases where, um, you know, a, a sergeant came by and saw a soldier didn't have a kitchen table, so he gave him his table. I mean, so you see these things and, and just the, um, and in many cases, it's the love that leaders have for their soldiers, for those that work for them. And, um, and just making sure as humans that they're doing well and flourishing as, as well as as soldiers. So, and, and really the, um, the family too, trying to keep the family, make sure the family's doing well and checking on the family, making sure that, because um, we consider everyone part of the team and not just the service member. Yeah, and I like the word flourishing, by the way. I think it's a, yeah. I think yeah, it's yeah. a wonderful uh, word to, to, to use. When you see people who transition, and this is me being very curious, because we have a lot of veterans, uh, uh, you know, working in the civilian world or military personnel transitioning to the civilian world. Right. What's, what, what do you think make somebody successful in that transition? What, what things are they learning that make them successful in that transition to the civilian world? Yeah, um, I think the, the frequent moves and the frequent changing of positions does help. Um, and the adaptability helps and the ability to learn. Um, and, you know, I think, the, though I think there is a, sometimes a learning curve because there is a, a different culture, different way of doing to make sure not to use military jargon because <laughs> people won't know what you're talking about. Um, so I, I think um, the, the armies and the military is very good about helping us take what, what's good, but also not, not losing something, but, uh, but realizing we're transitioning to a different way of doing things and that um, the things are going to be different. Uh, what you did the last 20 years or last four years, um, was one way of doing things and you've learned some great things, but the civilian world is going to have some different expectations and different language. Uh, and so, um, so yeah, so I think you, you take what you've learned really well and then you, you just be willing to adapt and, and become part of the new culture that you're joining. Yeah. 
And this is a, this is a great lesson, not just for military, but for everybody. Uh, right. Because in reality, you know, in the case of the military is military transitioning into the civilian world, but for civilians, it is transitioning into a new job, into a new role, mm-hmm. into a new organization. And at the end of the day, the process is kind of similar, right? You, if you have right. been versatile in your career and you have learned about a lot, a, lot, a lot of things and you have this flexibility that you talked about before, you're gonna go into a new organization where the culture is different, the, yeah. jar, the jargon uh, is different, <laughs> even being in the civilian right. world. And, uh, and you're going to need that flexibility to be thrown into a reality that you're not used to. So that's um, true. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a similar, I don't want to say it's the same experience, but it's, you got to embrace some, some of the same skills, right? Flexibility, versatility, uh, you know, your capacity to learn the new culture and the new things in this new world that you're getting into. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Cause, cause cultures can be radically different, even what you wear or expected in terms of, being at a certain time or yeah, that's true. Yeah. I, I want to ask you about, there are three words that I love when they are together, you know, and learning, learning and relearning, which is mm-hmm. part of this process of all sustain, you know, leaving the old behind, embracing yeah. the new. What, what comes to your mind in the work that you do in education? Uh, what comes to your mind when I say learning and learning, relearning, and, and how do you leave those, those skills, if you will, in, in, mm. in, in the organization? Yeah, um, I think in terms of our students, they, they participate in so many different uh, disciplines that um, you do have to encourage them to kind of put aside what they've learned before um, in terms of approaching problems. Like I teach philosophy, so philosophy has a certain way of approaching problems that's different from political science and different from math. And so it's um, telling them that it's okay to have these different modes of thought in their mind at the same time, but that um, this is something new. And, and especially with philosophy, they most have never had that before. And, and many at first are resistant to it. So I, I think it's um, just getting them to be open-minded and showing them the value of, of relearning things and learning new things and maybe have different ways of thought all in your mind at the same time and, and, and applying them differently, but then maybe bringing them together at certain points to solve really complex problems. But, um, but no, it, it's important and, and, you know, life changes. We just, we have a new, um, after 31 years in the army, we have a new physical fitness test. So I'm having to relearn something. <laughs> very challenging but um yeah so we're, we're always um teaching them how to to adapt to new things you know i am i am a i i, I am an engineer and i did have to take a class on philosophy you know 20 years ago and i remember the the professor she asked us to you know one of the tests she asked there was a she asked us our, our opinion about something and i wrote something yeah. and she i failed the test <laughs> and I asked her, like, how is it possible that I feel something that is my opinion? And she said, like, yeah, it's your opinion, but you got to use critical thinking, right? It's not just, right. you know, spinning out whatever comes to your mind. It is no. having a, 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 an opinion that, you know, where you're utilizing facts, you're, you're utilizing this ability for critical thinking. And she was totally right. I, I didn't do any of that. I just put whatever came to my mind in there. 
No, that's yeah, and that's the, that's the, the fostering way of, of learning using evidence, uh, premises, and conclusions. And I think it's a it's a good indication of that impact of the class that you still remember that and. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and this was literally twenty years ago. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I I feel like you had a good uh, philosophy class. Yeah, I think you know, and I, critical thinking, and again talking about these skills that are listed as the most important skills for the future. Critical thinking goes, goes you know, side, and, side to side with, with curiosity. Uh, right. Because, you know, we live in a world where we are exposed to, you know, thousands and thousands of pages of information via social yeah. media and news and whatnot. And if we're not able to utilize our capacity for critical thinking, then, uh, you know, we won't be able to drive, uh, you know, good decisions out of, out of that data, right? Yeah, like sorting through the good and bad information and then even understanding what the problem is. And then sometimes you can't solve problems, but you can try to make sense of them and do the best you can. Yeah, it's very important. Yeah, it's yeah. It's so complex now. And, and things are often, um, if you do this, then this will happen. So you really have to be able to see the range of things. That, yeah, oh, I, that, that's fantastic. And I, I, I think that, uh, well, of course, I'm, I'm not uh, a military expert, but whenever I read something about military thinking, it's, it's not just the decision you make on that one, one moment, it's the potential ramifications of that right. one decision and the consequences. And that's something that in the business world, people don't necessarily do, uh, especially not in HR. You know, it's like, oh, you know, let's do this today. And, you know, we don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow, right? Right. Yeah. No. Yeah, that, that everything's kind of interconnected now, especially globally. I mean, with, with technology, that, that things that happen here will have impacts around the world. So hopefully, I mean, things are getting better in that realm. Yeah, yeah, and we're thinking more about that. Well, Chris, as we wrap up this conversation, I, I want to close by asking you the same question that I ask everybody else at the end of the podcast, and that is, what excites you about the future and what concerns you about the future? Um. What excites me is I think technology offers the possibility for people to use their uniquely human skills, this critical thinking, creativity, curiosity, um, to support decisions, to sort through data. Um, and so I, I think that's, we can use technology to help us do the boring work and the really complex decisions. Um, I guess what, what I worry about, um, yeah, I want our leaders to be futures literate so that they understand um, how to think about the future and how to think about po multiple possible alternate futures and help their organizations um, prepare for those, but also to identify preferred futures. And I, I mean, so I heard someone say that we should teach futures thinking as much as we teach history in school. And <laughs> yeah within organizations as well, I think, especially leaders, but really everyone needs to be thinking about how to think about the future. Um, so I, I, I worry that we don't do that enough, but I, I'm hoping that we, we get better at that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good reason to be concerned about, but I, I'm hoping that with all these conversations, people you know, continue to get more inspired to learn more about you know, what we were talking about before, potential scenarios for for the future and how to get ready for them. Uh, we we yeah. don't even know which one will end up happening, but yeah. if we have the skills that will allow us to adapt to any of them, I think that that's, that's what, what matters. So 
So Chris, thank you so much for sharing all of these ideas with me. It was a great conversation about learning and, and you know, the experience from the military world into the civilian world. So thank you so much for sharing all these insights with me. Thank you, Enrique, and thank you for bringing everyone together to talk about these important issues because they, they need to be talked about and that's great. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much and thank you, everybody. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Hacking HR podcast. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for watching or listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please follow us on our social media and subscribe to our newsletter so that you can stay informed of all the things that we're putting together for you from the Hacking HR community. Thank you so much. Please continue to stay safe, stay well, stay strong, and we will see you soon.